0: read Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 to 30. Hear now God's holy, infallible, and inerrant word. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should, also, or you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray that the Lord would bless this. Father, this is indeed your word, and we as your children have come expectantly to hear your voice, and we pray that you would be with us by your spirit, that you would open our minds and our hearts to receive your word, and that you would transform us, equip us for faithful service. We do desire to live lives that are worthy of the gospel, that is our hope, so help us to do that this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. All persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. So, in, so begins the 14th Amendment of the Constitution of the United States, that is the so-called citizenship clause of our Constitution, which clarifies who is a citizen of this country. This amendment was passed almost 100 years after the founding of our nation. It's clear for us, but in the Roman world, citizenship was not quite so automatic. It was a much more complex process. It was not guaranteed. But for those who had Roman citizenship, it was a source of pride. And there were special benefits. There was a relief in taxation, if you can believe that, um, and also special judicial privileges. But there were also requirements. There were expectations. Roman citizens were expected to live lives worthy of their Roman citizenship. And Philippi was unique, a, a city that was unique in that it was established as a Roman colony. And as such, all the citizens of Philippi were given, granted, Roman citizenship. And what's more, Philippi seems to have been a popular residence of many active duty Roman soldiers, as well as uh, retirees of the Roman legion, and so if we're to understand Philippi and the context in which Paul wrote this letter, we need to understand a very pro-Roman spirit. We actually get a glimpse of that in Acts chapter 16, which is where Paul and Silas go to the city of Philippi, and they cast out uh, the demon out of this slave girl, and the slave girl's owners take, take Paul and Silas and stir up a mob and have them beaten and bring them before the magistrate, and they say, To the magistrate, these men are Jews, and they are causing an uproar, and they said they are advocating customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice, not as Philippians, but as Romans. So Roman patriotism filled the air, and it no doubt filled the air of the Philippian church as well, because... The Church of Jesus Christ is made out of people who are brought out of their cultural context. And such is also true for us here at Zion. We, no doubt, have a very distinctly American identity as a church, Uh, or American practices, which we are probably largely unaware of, but for those people who are coming from outside of the U.S., might be very clear and distinct. But what we need to understand is that as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are truly dual citizens. Dual citizens. Paul will say in Philippians chapter 3 that our citizenship is in heaven. We are heavenites, and yet we are still here on earth. We are citizens of our earthly city and also of our heavenly city, and yet we must live in a way that is in accordance with our true citizenship in heaven. And just as Philippi was a colony of Rome, so the church is a colony of heaven, of which we are Participants, and so Christians must live as worthy citizens of heaven. We must live lives that are worthy of the gospel. Now, um, Paul has been talking about his own circumstances and what he expects. And if you remember what we talked about last week, he was he was uh, explained to the Philippian church how he. What, what he thinks the outcome of his trial will be, how he believes that um, it will turn out that the Lord will end up uh, causing him to be acquitted and he'll be able to return to the, the Philippian church for their um, their benefit. But whatever the the situation, he says in verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Only let your manner of Life worthy of the gospel of Christ. But veiled veiled behind our English translation is a sense that Paul is appealing to the Philippians' sense of pride in their citizenship. Because literally what he says in verse 27, he says, only worthy of the gospel of Christ live as citizens. Live as citizens. He says, just as you're Chest swells at the thought of, at the the sound of Roman citizenship. Know that you are a citizen of heaven. And just as you must live worthy of your Roman citizenship, you must live worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for you are truly citizens of heaven. Our citizenship was purchased at a great price the blood of Jesus. We're also citizens by birth. By the work of the Holy Spirit, we have new birth, and we are citizens, birthright citizens of heaven. So we must live worthy of that. So how how do we live lives that are worthy of this citizenship? Well, Paul gives three key characteristics of this worthy living. The first is that it must be observable. It must be obvious. There's no such thing as a closet Christian of Jesus Christ. The citizens of heaven make it known. He says, says, whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit. He says, I may be able to come by God's grace to come and see you. And when I come, I should be able to see that you are living lives that are worthy well, but if by God's grace I remain here in prison and there is a report that is sent of you and I am absent from you, I will hear of it. That will characterize your life. That will characterize this church, that you are living, worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So it's that Paul would be able to see it, that it would be something noteworthy to speak of, but it'd also be observable to Opponents. Because he goes on talking about standing firm and not being frightened by opponents. As a colony of heaven, the kingdom of Jesus Christ has broken into the kingdom of the world. And both kingdoms demand allegiance and obedience, and so there is war. And what he is saying is you must live. Clearly, in such a way that even you will be opposed. We must be observable with how we bear witness to the gospel of Christ. It is not to be hidden. And since there will be opponents, we must stand firm. The second way he talks about living lives worthy is that we must do so with unity. Unity unity. So he says, so that when I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, or could even be translated one soul, striving side for side, side by side for the faith of the gospel. He's uh, using some kind of uh, military Metaphor here: the the concept of standing firm is a, a military concept of standing firm against an enemy. And he's when he talks about standing side by side, perhaps he's got in mind a Roman military formation called the testudo or the, the tortoise, where the uh, Roman legion would get in tight formation and they would be lined up. Uh, very close to one another and the front row, you may have seen pictures of this, the front row of of soldiers would take their shields and they would put them in front like a a wall and they would interlock their shields. And then the second row and everybody behind them would take their shields and put them up above and form a protective ceiling over the unit. And these soldiers would have to fight side by side, remaining close, pursuing a common enemy, defending against a common enemy, and that's the imagery that he uses for the church. Just as a military unit, if it were not to stand side by side, would allow the enemy to divide and conquer, so the church must stand side by side. We must protect one another. We must fight, contend for a, a common purpose. One theologian said that Christians never contend against anybody, we contend for the gospel. We must be contending for the sake of the gospel. And just as in a military unit, if you are defending against an enemy, you cannot have soldiers turning and fighting against one another. So we, as brothers and sisters, must stand firm side by side, supporting one another, not turning on one another and biting and devouring each other. But despite all this opposition, the third way that we live in a way that's worthy of that gospel is fearless. He says, verse 28, and not frightened in any way, in anything by your opponents. Again, he, he seems to be using yet another military metaphor, there was a contemporary of Paul by the name of Plutarch who was a philosopher and historian, and he told the story of a uh, Roman legion soldier who was killed on the battlefield because his horse was frightened. And the word that Plutarch uses uh, is the same word that Paul uses, and Paul, it's nowhere else in scripture. It's this, the idea of a horse frightened or agitated or scared on the battlefield. And it's like he's trying to remind us, we are in a true battle in the midst of this world. but We must not be frightened. We must not be terrified, agitated by anything. We must be bold and confident. And it's such an important point to him that he gives us three encouragements to that boldness. The first is he talks about the end of this opposition. What what Paul says, it's... um, in verse 28, this is kind of a confusing statement in our English translation, English Standard Version translation. Uh, the NASB has this a little bit more in a more helpful way. Uh, our translation says, "This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God." Um, scholars are correct that the Greek does not have the word "there" in there. Uh, in, the, in the, the statement as if he's uh, talking about their destruction. Uh, the, the, the better translation is, this is a clear sign to them of destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. And what Paul is getting at is the two perspectives that are there on the oppression of the church. The world the opponents of the gospel of Jesus Christ see the opposition the church faces and they believe that this will end in destruction. They believe for good purpose that the church will ultimately see its demise. Reason will finally triumph. Science will finally triumph. Progress will finally triumph. Public opinion will finally root out the church but the church will ultimately meet its demise that th- th- this is a clear sign this opposition is a clear sign to them of that destruction but our understanding our perspective our knowledge of the truth is that this will be of our salvation or vindication this is the same word that paul used earlier when he was talking about his own imprisonment and he was saying i know that this will turn out for my vindication That God is using this for his glory. And he's saying the same thing to the church. Your opposition that you face will turn out for your salvation. Jesus Christ has said, I am building my church. and The gates of hell will not prevail against it. We rest secure knowing that no foe, no opposition will be able to topple the church church of Jesus Christ, because we are rooted in the strength and the power of Jesus Christ himself. So we understand that uh, we're encouraged by the fact that it's an end, but also we're encouraged because this opposition is a gift, Paul says. Verse 29, he says, for this is, this is uh, from God, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake or suffer on behalf of him. And, and the root of the word that gets translated granted there, the root is the word for grace. He says, you've been graced with the gift of not only believing in him, which we know is a gift. We just read about it from Ephesians chapter 2. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. We, we, we have given the, been given the gift of believing in Jesus Christ. But now he says, but not just only believing him, but also for suffering on behalf of Christ, is what he says. We, we, have, we have been united to Christ, and we have the gift of suffering, of bearing witness to Christ's sufferings by suffering for, for his sake. And so it's a gift. And not only that, the third encouragement is that it is a universal gift for all of God's people. He says, suffering for his sake, verse 30, engaged in the same conflict that you saw that I had and now hear that I still have. So when he talks about the, he says, the conflict that you saw that I had, he's perhaps talking about that incident in Acts chapter 16. Paul and Silas were there, they cast out the The demon, they are beaten, they are tried, they are thrown in prison until the Lord breaks their bonds. And if you remember, that's the incident where the jailer nearly commits suicide, but Paul says, wait, we're all still here. And he says, sirs, what must, must I do to be saved? And he says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you shall be saved. Well, we're a few years removed from those events, so very likely we should expect that the Philippian jailer and his household are members of this church in Philippi, and perhaps even that slave girl who had the demon cast out of her. He says, you saw that conflict. You were eyewitnesses to it. And now this is this letter to the Philippians comes and by the hand of Epaphroditus, and he's talking about his imprisonment and the opposition and everything. He says, "And you've now heard that I still have that conflict. And he's saying, and the opposition you face, it's the same conflict. There are different skirmishes in the same war. And we, we understand now why Paul went to great lengths to explain his own perspective on his own suffering. It was an encouragement to them to know that God is at work. God works his salvation even through and especially through this suffering. And he says it's a it's a different place and a different time and a different cast of characters. But brothers and sisters, it's the same conflict because we are all united to Christ. And this is what happens when we are united to Christ. And brothers and sisters, you and I are engaged in that same conflict as well. That same conflict that, you, that we heard about from the Apostle Paul and that we've seen in, in throughout church history, it is the same conflict, suffering on behalf of Christ. And beloved, we have been given the greatest gift that we could ever receive in Jesus Christ, the gift of salvation, the gift of knowing the one true and living God, who has sent his son to redeem us from our sins and to give us deliverance from his wrath, to give us the joy of being his people forever and ever and the joy of of eternity in his presence and of being united to one another. That's a great and glorious gift that we've been given. But even from this passage alone, brothers and sisters, we have to know that that Salvation comes at a cost to us in this life. Paul told Timothy, he said, anyone who desires to live a godly life will be persecuted. Will be persecuted. Here he says, it has been granted to you, it's been gifted to you to suffer on behalf of Christ. Which means that we could expect worldly opposition in every way that is Christ has brought his kingdom into this world he has made us members of that kingdom we brothers and sisters are in the crosshairs of that warfare we are in the crosshairs of the enemy's attacks the world's hate the world will attack our message the world will attack our manner of life, and the world will attack the individual members of Christ. That is what we should expect. We have been brought into this kingdom and immediately mobilized into our Savior's conflict. We are on the front lines. And the world will oppose us, and the world will believe, genuinely so, that they are doing the world a service by opposing the message and the manner of life and the people, the manners, the members. But, beloved, in the midst of all that, we're not to be frightened by anything. He says, not, not frightened in anything by your opponents. We're we're not to be frightened by our uh, the the potential loss of a promotion or the loss of a job or students i know that you often face this conflict head on in the midst of the world you should not fear the loss of friends We shouldn't fear the loss of our tax-exempt status as a church or even the ability to worship in this school. We should not fear facing true, legitimate persecution of a physical standpoint or even our freedom or even death. Not in anything, he says. Because, beloved, we face this because of the gift of, that we have been united to Christ. And Jesus Christ has said that he will fight for us. He will protect us. He told, he told us, he said, all that the Father has given me are mine and no one, no one can snatch them out of my, my hand. He says, I am building my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And brothers and sisters, if your faith is in Christ Jesus, then the gates of hell will not prevail against you. Jesus Christ himself, the King of kings and Lord of lords, will fight and defend and protect you. You are his forever and ever. We cannot be afraid. In fact, uh, the, it's, it's, it's a gift. And, and John Calvin said this wonderful statement that we if we could wrap our heads around this it would be so wonderful he said oh if this conviction that this is a gift were fixed in our minds that persecutions are to be reckoned among god's benefits persecutions reckoned among god's benefits what progress would be made of the doctrine of godliness and yet what is more certain than that it is the highest honor of the divine grace that we suffer for his name, either reproach or imprisonment or miseries or tortures or even death. For in that case, he decorates us with his insignia. But more of us will be found who will order God and his gifts to be gone rather than to embrace the cross readily when it is offered to them. Woe then to our stupidity, Calvin says. It is a gift because it is evidence that we are truly in Christ. But we do have to be careful because um, when we talk about suffering, not all suffering is created equal. Paul is, uh, is talking about a particular type of suffering that is ours in Christ Jesus. We can and we will suffer for our own sin, and we will and we can suffer because of our own foolishness or lack of wisdom. And Paul's not talking about that kind of suffering. He's talking specifically about the suffering that comes, the persecution that comes, the opposition that comes for bearing witness to Christ with our lives, boldly and observably in the midst of the world where God has put us. And, uh, uh, the Apostle Peter highlights this distinction in First Peter 4. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Brothers and sisters, none of us wants to suffer, and none of us wants to be persecuted. But God's word is abundantly clear. It is a gift of being united to Christ do you believe that are you can you believe that can you internalize that into your heart wrap your arms the arms of your heart around that and just hold tight because if we could just accept that as true what how how would that affect our ability to bear witness in the midst of the world? How, if we could do, do that collectively as a church, to be fearless and excited that we can bear witness to Christ, even in our sufferings, what would be the impact to our effectiveness in proclaiming Christ to, in the place of this culture, which is so averse to any kind of opposition or pain or anything such as that. And beloved, this isn't an optional, this isn't, this isn't a, well, this is, you know, master's level Christianity. This is what Paul says is how we live a life worthy of the gospel that we have received how we live as citizens of heaven, clearly and boldly and together, united. Well, we do have to have our priorities straight, beloved, because Paul is not exhorting the Philippians to be bold in trying to reform Roman culture or Roman politics or even establish Good social justice programs. No doubt some of those Christians independently worked to do such things in the midst of the culture as they individually sought to work out their salvation in the context the Lord had given them. And so ought some of us be focused on those things. But the Church of Jesus Christ, that is not our focus. Our focus is proclaiming Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Our Primary focus, Paul's focus, the Lord's focus is exalting Jesus Christ and exhorting those who are lost to fall in behind the Lord Jesus Christ and join in the formation of glory and to contend together for this hope of salvation. And we do so with our words and with our lives, and beloved, with our unity. Paul says, I want to see that you are of one spirit, one mind, striving side by side for the faith. Surely, brothers and sisters, in the midst of our culture, which is so divisive and partisan, there is something distinctly glorious. When the church bears witness through its unity, We have different perspectives, we have different priorities, but when we can join together side by side for the sake of the gospel and in brotherly affection and love for one another, we can avoid grumbling and complaining and fighting against one another. That is distinctly unique in the midst of this world and is gloriously beautiful. And that is God's design. So, beloved, Be on guard for those things that would hinder that unity. Be on guard against a grumbling spirit or gossiping or slandering or coveting spirit. Beware of your own uh, inclination to abandon the battlefield through idleness or self indulgence or apathy or fear. Your Savior has called you to stand side by side with your brothers and sisters contending for the sake of the gospel, bearing witness to him. So do so with boldness and with joy. So I have one other thing to say, and that would be uh, to any one of us here who would not consider themselves a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you may be looking at the church either in this country or across the world that may be seeing it lose its foothold on culture, see it decline in numbers, see it turn on itself and say, uh, ultimately, this church thing is not going to work out. Um, And you may think that that's a really good thing, that the, the church has done more destructive work over the history of the world than a benefit and you may think that you know through government programs or progressive thought or or whatever it may be ultimately the church will just be a footnote in the history books and friend what you need to hear is that the the sovereign god speaks to you too in this passage he 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 makes clear that there are two perspectives there is one that expects that the church will ultimately be destroyed. And that is a false expectation. The other is that this will be of their vindication. What you need to know is that this is a promise of God. And God's promises are yes and amen in his son, Jesus Christ. And so if we want to know We want to understand this. We have to look at the cross. That's where God points us. And he says, my my church is hated because he was hated. My church is persecuted because he was persecuted. And even if members of the body should be tortured and killed, it's because my son was tortured and killed. But we know that the church will never die because Jesus Christ was raised from the dead never to die again with the power of an indestructible life. And he has been seated as king of kings and lord of lords over all heavenly authority. And so our hope is in the fact that we have a victorious king who is fighting for us. And it is under his banner that we live and breathe and have our being. And beloved, the good news is that Jesus Christ offers you citizenship in his kingdom. He has paid the price for your entry into that kingdom. And he says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Make him your hope and your salvation and it will truly be yours. And in response, live a life worthy of that gospel of Jesus Christ, bearing witness to his glory and grace brothers and sisters it's been granted to us not only to believe in him but to suffer for his sake and we must not fear because we have been equipped and empowered to stand firm in Christ Jesus you know the words of our favorite, one of our favorite songs did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing we're not the right man on our side the man of god's own choosing You ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabaoth, Lord of heaven's armies, is his name. From age to age the same. And he must win the battle. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear. For God has willed his truth to triumph through us. Brothers and sisters, that is our hope is our hope in Jesus Christ. So live a life worthy of that calling with boldness and clarity and united hand in hand with your brothers and sisters to the glory of our Savior Jesus Christ. Let us do this. And in his name we say amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that you have given us this great gift. Help us to walk in it we are unable to do so apart from your grace. And we thank you that you've given us your spirit. Thank you for your son who rules and reigns over us and help us to trust in your sovereign care and to walk in a worthy manner. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.